Good morning. morning. I'm wearing a shirt in honor of uh, Bishop Oscar Dace, who was a pastor and served in a church here locally for 35 years. And his memorial, he passed away uh, this past month. His memorial was yesterday, and everybody got a T-shirt. And so I got one. And um, this man served in kind of northern San Jose, um, African-American church, under-resourced. He pastored that church for 35 years. 26 of those years, he was on dialysis three times a week, four hours a time, and still served faithfully. Of all the time I was with him, he never mentioned being sick. I say that all because just to let you know, there are still giants in the land. And this weekend is about going back and looking at some of our history that Westgate stands on, some of the the works that have gone on around the world. This journey began because I was basically, I was ignorant of it. And in 13 uh, years ago, in 2010, I realized I didn't know anything about the modern missionary movement and the global effort that had been going on for centuries. And I just didn't know. I, and I, if I didn't know, I figured y'all didn't know. And since we didn't know, I thought I'd start a journey, and we're still on it. We're still on it. Um, this modern missionary movement began um, with a guy named William Carey. And in the early 1800s, William Carey began what historians call this modern missionary movement. And let me just read you a quote about this missionary movement, where he went to India, by the way. It said, it said this, Stephen Neal, in the history of the Christian mission, he said, the cool and rational 18th century, the century that ended with William Carey's departure, was hardly a promising seedbed for Christian growth. But out of it came a greater outburst of Christian missionary enterprise than had been seen in all of the centuries before. William Carey began to do this out of of Great Britain, and then other missionaries came and began to uh, flood to the different continents. And very quickly, there were works on the coastal areas of all of the continents in the world, which led to a guy named Hudson Taylor, who began China Inland Mission, where they realized we need to now go inland to, into the continent of Asia, into the continent of Africa. And so he began to work, and this movement, this phase of the movement, really went from about the end of our Civil War, 1865, to 1830, um, 1934. And there were great um, reaches into every country, and, and we learn in the Lusane Council of Missions that by 1974, every country in the world had been reached with at least some gospel influence of Jesus. But as they got to uh, around the 30s, they realized that it, when you moved into a country, just because you moved into the country didn't mean you reached the country, that there were lots of different people groups inside of that country and lots of different languages. And so that began with then with Cameron Townsend, the Wycliffe Bible Translators Movement, where they, they began this effort to try to make sure that everyone on the, on the planet had the scriptures in their first language. 
This began in 34, and it, this is where we find ourselves now. If you want to know where we are in the modern missionary movement, we are still in this, this um, phase of trying to make sure that everybody gets scriptures in their language. In fact, I hold in my hands an effort from us, from our church, where we sponsored um, a couple of missionaries in Indonesia who did this in the Mamba uh, language. It's the very first New Testament in that language ever. And uh, this is a copy of what their, what their work did. They finished it just a little over a year ago, and it's now in print and made available, and you have actually purchased many of those copies and made them available to people in Indonesia. Max and Janet and their work um, completed this. This work has still been going on. There are still over 5,000 people groups without the scriptures in their first language, in their known first vernacular. And so the, the effort continues on, beginning with the mama, mama, I think it's mama, not mamba. I like mamba better, so that's what I always fault to. Sorry, mama and Max and Janet. Way we began to do this, it's a very simple process. Don't be, don't be over-intimidated by what happens in this process. I basically, the, in the months before this week, I find biographies of known missionaries, and we began the journey with John G. Patton, crazy guy who went to the, um, the islands of the New Hebrides, and there were cannibals there, and his work was awesome. David Brainerd which was a missionary that in all uh, rightful ways of evaluating it, when he died as a young man, it, he was a complete failure. Kicked out of seminary, a failure to American Indians trying to reach them. But it was a biography on this man's work that motivated hundreds, probably thousands of missionaries over the next hundred years to go and leave their home and serve Christ. Andrew Fuller, he was the organizational genius behind William Carey, and, and, and coined the phrase, the rope holder, the guy who stayed behind so that William Carey could go to India. Adoniram Judson, the first American Protestant missionary, North American Protestant missionary to go, and, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about him and his family today. John Newton, who is the writer of the, the hymn Amazing Grace. He was also the pastoral counselor to William Wilberforce, and was a great voice of both kindness yet clarity um, in his time. George Mueller pastored a small church, small church by even our standards, much smaller than us, and led an effort that led to tens and even hundred over 100,000 orphans being cared for in his city. Um, William Wilberforce was in 2016. He's one of my heroes. He helped, I think, almost single-handedly abolish the slave trade in Great Britain. Eric Little um, is the, uh, what the movie Chariots of Fire was written about. He was the Olympian who ran and wouldn't run on Sunday. And uh, he actually was a missionary in China and a great missionary, died um, in China in prison. Arthur Guinness, the, yes, the guy who started the beer company. Um, that was a great year. Um, and uh, he championed what he could, what it looked like if Christ came with you to work. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the courage you get to stand against Hitler in World War II. Leslie Newbegin last year was the guy who went to India and was a missionary. And then when he came back uh, to England after being gone 40 years, he realized that England had become more pagan than India. 
which sounds familiar. And then I want to take you on a, uh, probably a journey that will surprise you. Uh, today, I, want to, I was introduced to this when we did uh, Adoniram Judson years ago. I was introduced to this reality, and I wanted to come back to it, and I finally got the chance to do it. I wanted today, I want to introduce you to the three Mrs. Judsons. Now, to do this, I just find biographies, and I read them. Uh, these are some books that I read here. They're almost the same title, and, uh, and you can get them. One of them, the uh, bottom one, or the one on your right, bottom of my screen, um, is available for free. It's no longer in print, and so you can get it in a PDF online if you'd like to read about them. So I'd like to tell you about the Judsons and um, their role in Burma, which is today called Myanmar. Let's pray. Beautiful Savior, Lord of all the nations, we thank you that your heart, your message, your gospel, your effort towards us was not limited to just a certain people. We thank you that you seem to specialize in using just faithful efforts of ordinary people to do extraordinary things for the kingdom. And we thank you that you are not done. As we look um, today, at the example of what went on in Burma, God, would you, would you open our eyes to see what you might want to do with us? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a little background. Adoniram Judson was a brilliant child. He actually, his father was away for a trip when he was three years old, and so he decided he would learn to read so he could surprise his father when he came home. And by the time he came back from his father's trip away, he was able to read the New Testament. He's brilliant. He went to Brown at age 16, Brown University, and he graduated by the, um, when he was 19 at the top of his class. During that time period, he gets introduced to a guy named Jacob Eames. And Jacob Eames is a skeptic, a skeptic and a deist, and he causes... Adoniram to doubt his faith and kind of turn away from it. He turns away from it. He decides he's going to write plays. He goes to New York and joins a theater troupe and is traveling around doing that, realizes that he's wasting his life and they're not making any money. He's starving. He's going to now go back home. And on his way back home, he stays in a lousy, cheap hotel. And in the next room, all through the night, there's somebody in there very, very sick, coughing, horrible coughing all through the night. And when Adoniram gets up the next morning, he, he goes um, and checks out of this hotel, and he says, oh, by the way, how is the guy that was in the room next to me? And he said, oh, he died. He died during the night. And he said, do you know his name? And he said, he was a young man from Brown, Jacob Eames. And Adoniram was jolted. And said, this cannot be a coincidence. This, there has to be more to life than this. God has to be something other than just got the ball rolling and then disengaged. And he re-engaged with his faith and decided he would go and serve Christ overseas. Now, he's, this has never happened before out of the United States. There's never been a missionary really leave yet except for Catholic missionaries. And so in the Protestant faith, it's not happened. 
he goes and gets ready to do that, meets a gal named Anne. And Anne um, is sold out for Christ, is brilliant, um, also very smart and a, a great writer. And this is the letter Adoniram wrote to Anne's father. Ready, dads? I have now to ask you if you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring and to see her no more in this world. <laughs> Whether you can consent to subject her to the hardships and dangers of missionary life whether you can consent to expose her to the dangers of the ocean and to the fatal influences of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, persecution, insult, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the hope of saving immortal souls, and for Zion, can, can you consent to all of this for the hope of one day meeting your daughter again in the world of glory? Anne's father replied, it's up to Anne. <laughs> and here's what Anne said. She wrote to a letter, uh, in a letter to a friend. I feel willing and expect that if nothing prohibits to spend my days in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affections to relatives and to friends, and to go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. Adoniram and Anne sail in 1812 for India, Remember who's in India, William Carey. They meet with William Carey, and they plan to, do it, to go and help there with the work in India. But um, because the officials there in India have stopped um, any sharing of the faith to any of the Hindus at the time, it was a weird time, they said, we're going to go to what was known as Burma. William Carey said, for God's sake and for Anne's sake, anywhere but Burma. It's the worst place you can go. The people are warriors. The climate is as horrible. The average temperature is 105 degrees. There's usually not enough water, and when there is water, it's way too much. The diseases there are the kind that the... the, the English are not ready to fight against. The, the level of poverty there, you can show this next picture that gives you a, an idea of Myanmar today. Don't go there. <laughs> that was like dangling candy in front of Adoniram and Anne. And they went and they begin to serve there. It takes them three years to learn the language. It's a very difficult language to learn. It, they go six years before there's a convert to Christianity and seven years before they have a church service, a single church service. This is hard work. Well, it, they go and it starts to kind of pick up a little bit of steam. And then um, there's the Ang what's known as the Anglo-Burmese War. Basically, Great Britain declared war on 
Burmese. And the Burmese government immediately arrested every Westerner in the country. They put Adoniram in jail and had a small child, a newborn child, so they didn't place her in jail. And so for the next over, over a year and a half, this is a, a, a painting of, see, you can see Anne carrying a child and Adoniram down on his knees. In the nighttime, they would chain him by his ankles where only thing that touched the ground was his shoulders and head. He will not stay alive unless Anne gets food for him. And so for the next two years and three months total, spent in jail, every day she walks two miles to the jail with her child and begs the officials to let Adoniram go, to let them know that they're, they're not a part of what's going on in Great Britain, that they're from the United States. It doesn't matter. They don't release him. They won't release him. She gets really sick during this time and, and can't nurse the, the newborn child. And so she and Adoniram sometimes would convince the jailer to let him go out, would go out in the evenings and beg the women in the area to please nurse their baby. Eventually, the Burmese, Anglo-Burmese War stops, and guess, guess what? There's only one person or two people in the country that can speak both Burmese and English. It's Adoniram and Anne. And so, by the way, Anne can speak it better than him and write it and, and, and help with the, the translation of a Bible better than him. She's a fantastic linguist. She does this after all of this time in jail that he's finally released. He negotiates the peace with Great Britain. And then 11 months later, Anne dies. The toll was just too hard. Six months after that, the child dies. And Adoniram, these losses and all of this thing, they send him into a doubt and depression. It's very dark for over a couple of years. And then out of nowhere, it seems, there's what Adoniram called the spirit of inquiry where suddenly he wakes up in the morning. And remember, it, there's nobody hardly has converted and during this whole time, and then the rest of the time he's been in jail. And he wakes up in the morning, and he comes to his front door of his little hut, and people are lined up waiting to talk to the Jesus man. And they begin to come to Christ. And in 1831, this great movement happens, along with Anne's help. Adoniram has written a, a dictionary of the Burmese language, translating words into English, and then has gone, begun work on a New Testament. And in 1834, eight years later, he meets a gal named Sarah, Sarah Boardman. Sarah is the widow of a missionary who died earlier in Burmese, a very good and effective missionary. And, and Sarah is running gigantic schools for children. And she's doing it in a way that becomes the example where William Carey and all his folks will come over and see how she does it. And it becomes the example of how to run missionary schools for 100 years. This woman is brilliant. And they decide to marry. 
She bore him. In the next 11 years, uh, Sarah bore eight children. And that alone was actually too much. She wrote of Adoniram, listen to this, he is the complete assemblage of all that a woman's heart could wish to love and honor. In other words, she dug him. But she, because of too many children, gets very sick. Now, there's only one thing to do when you get sick if you, if you want to try to live. And they, they tried it with Anne. They actually sent Anne home uh, one time to North America. And she, while she was there getting, getting well, she wrote a book about her experiences with Adoniram in, in Burmese. And that book just becomes famous and starts generating all of this interest in, in missions all around the world. Now, Sarah gets sick. Adoniram gets on a boat with her this time because we, last time when they sent Anne, it was really treacherous for her to travel alone. And so he gets on the, he leaves part of the children behind, get, takes part of the children with him, and they get on a boat. And as they're going around the Horn of Africa, Sarah dies. She dies in 1845. These are the last words penned, and she wrote these to her husband, Adoniram. Adoniram, then gird thine armor on. Love, nor faint thou by the way, till Satan shall fall and Burma's son shall own Messiah's way. I, mean, I don't know how Adoniram did it, but he married two amazing women, courageous, brilliantly smart. He goes, since he's on the boat heading towards North America, he decides to go ahead and come on, come on home. It's his first time to come home in 33 years. And he comes and when he gets there, he says, I'm going to try to hire someone to write a biography about Sarah. He's got lots of notes about how she was and he wants her to be honored that way. And so he finds a gal, her pen name is Fanny Forrester, and her real name was Emily Chubbuck. She's a famous author. She's got books that are out in print, that in 30,000 copies have been sold of one particular book. And she's just really, really famous and a brilliant writer. Here's a picture of her in her, um, her pen name, the Fanny name. They fall crazy in love. She marries him and goes back to Burmese. I don't know how. I mean, he's, I mean, I guess he's handsome, but he ain't that handsome. I mean, it's just like. And the biographies say for the next four years, um, they are extremely happy. She is really happy-go-lucky kind of a person. And, um, and they marry and she goes back to Burmese, and for the next four years, they have an, a wonderful relationship. And then and Adoniram gets sick at age 61. The only way to get well is to get on a boat. He gets on a boat without her, gets on this boat, and on the trip, basically alone, Adoniram dies. In 1850. Four months later, uh, Emily goes home. And does a bunch of writing about the experience in Burmese. 
she's with child, and the child is born, still born. Um, and then four years later, three years later in 1854, uh, Emily dies of tuberculosis. They, at the time of Adoniram's death, they had seen this work expand to go from one church to 100 churches and over 8,000 converts. And if you were to ask any of the four of these people, they would have said it was well worth their life. But if you fast forward a couple of hundred years from 1820s when it started to the 2020s of today, you'll find that actually in Myanmar, there's the third largest concentration of Baptists in the world. There's almost 4,000 Baptist churches there, which have a annual, I mean, a, an attendance of over 2 million. Plus, he wrote, or he, with, along with his team of wives, one at a time, <laughs> translated the Bible into Burmese and wrote a Burmese English dictionary that still today is the standard for um, learning the language. If Christ were to tarry, this is the question that flooded into my mind. If Christ were to tarry, what will it look like in 200 years for us? People are asking me all the time, how's that transition going with Jay? Of course, I say, great. It's fantastic. But we won't really know till at least 10 years. How about your life? Where are you investing? Now, you don't... This is an extreme case. You're thinking, what a bummer. What a bummer for them. Well, maybe. Um, but this is actually a biblical experiment that we're doing right here. To take the time to remember back of the people who have come before us. You know the scriptures do that. The book of Hebrews is actually organized around the 11th chapter, which is a listing of all of the people that have come before. This exercise that I do every year now for together with y'all has been so helpful for me because I get so used to thinking this is how it's always been. You want to go to Myanmar? Well, just jump on a jet. Forget a nine-month trip in a boat that sails and is full of all kinds of disease along the way. I thought you always had iPhones. I, mean, I get so used to the now that I don't realize what's come before. And it shakes me out of my softness. I was going to say something else, but that's all, that'll work. My, I just, just softness for the, the things that I care most deeply about. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Through three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, there's the motivation. There's a great cloud. In the book, this therefore means the chapter right before where they listed all of those. But for us, we can say it's even more than that. Hundreds and hundreds to millennia worth of witnesses of those who have come before, who have laid aside the pleasures and the desires of this world and served Christ first. 
since we are surrounded by such a great cloud. And it's not the idea so much as they see us, although that's an interesting thought. It's more about us seeing them. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Hinders, the word there for hinders actually means a weight. It's like running with a weight. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And that's the idea of something. It would be like putting a rope around your waist and it dangles back six or eight feet and you running with it. And eventually it's going to flop around in such a way that it's going to tangle you up. Throw off those kinds of things. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Then watch this. And let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. The word for perseverance is to, to hold up under a weight. The word for race, we get our word agony from. See, maybe this whole story about Adoniram and the Judson, the three Judson wives is, is more like it usually is than we want to admit. Maybe your life is not supposed to be as easy as you're hoping it will be. That there's a race that's actually marked out for you. And a race that is marked out for me. And a race that was marked out for Oscar Days. And God is asking us to stay faithful to that race. Whatever it might be. Now, God's, one of God's great agendas in your life is joy. So if you hate something, he's not going to say, hey, go give your life to that. Like, let's say you hate poetry. I just came to mind because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with a poem in a minute. <laughs> so if you hate poetry right about now, it's pretty soon it's a good, good time to leave. But let's say you hate poetry and then you think, well, if I surrender to God, I know what he's going to do. He's going to ask me to write poetry all my life. Now, why would a God of heaven who loves you and has joy as an agenda for you do something like that? I know what he'll do. He'll, I, like for me, I hate cold weather. And then, so where's God going to send me? Antarctica. <laughs> what? And if he does send me to Antarctica, I, he'll provide a big, thick coat. I mean, he's, he's just not the kind of God that assigns you things that you hate. You will find yourself, once you surrender to it and stop fighting against it, you will find yourself throwing off the things that so easily trip you up. Gosh, how do you do that? Well, there's, a, there's actually the example of something. Fix your eyes. Bring your concentration on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. The pioneer is like the, the chief leader. It surpasses all the heroes that were listed in chapter 11. Jesus is beyond every hero listed there. And the perfecter of our faith, that means he's, he completed all the work that needed to be done. 
It's completely finished. For the joy set before him endured the cross. This is an important principle in terms of how we kind of go about things. If you are stuck in yesterday, you're stuck in a bad way. There is a joy that is set before you that actually helped Christ endure the cross. Only time in the scriptures that it says Jesus endured anything. He, he, looking forward to the cross, looking forward to that and what it meant to him, he could endure what's going on. If you're stuck in yesterday, you're having a hard time with today. The joy set before you allows you to have the strength to persevere, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. This is a beautiful thing here in that it's in the perfect tense that he sat down. It means that he sat down at a particular time and he remains seated. The work is complete. It's not in the aorist tense, which would have been he gets up and down. But although he seems to get up every once in a while, we see in Acts when Stephen looks up to heaven as he's being stoned and becomes a martyr for the cause of Christ, we see that um, what happens is, is that actually Jesus stands up for him. Consider him. Consider Christ. This is the one imperative in the whole command, to consider Christ. Think about him. Careful deliberation. So that, every time you see that, I hope you realize that it's a purpose statement. It's so that. Why do you want to do this? So that you will not grow weary. That's a physical tiredness or lose heart, which literally means to release your soul. And that's a spiritual weariness. I'm reminded of Isaiah 40, but to those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. All right, I got no idea how long I've gone. I used to be able to tell when I preached all the time, but now it's, so y'all are just gonna have to stay here. Just a couple more things. Lessons from the Judsons. Just a couple of things. First, Jesus died for all people. All people of the world. And we must be global in our view of Christianity. We must be. To be biblical, we must be biblical in the view of our world. Secondly, Work behind the scenes, although at the time not noticed, are often the efforts to sustain and allow long-lasting fruit. These wives, the three wives of Adoniram Judson, you could say as you look back on all of the work in terms of translating, all of the work, Adoniram wouldn't have made it through the fifth year in Burmese if it hadn't have been for Anne. He'd have died in prison, quick, all this work behind the scenes. And, what, here's, and here's for most of you in the room. There's very few of you in the room who are called to something that's going to be up in front. Most of us will do work behind the scenes. And if you're faithful to it, there will be a great cloud of witnesses that give honor to it. Number three, courage and willingness to die to self is powerful and rare. 
I mean, when I read of the three Mrs. Judsons, I am in awe of their courage. One more, I think. The call to Christ is just the same in the 2020s as it was in the 1820s. You say, yes, Lord. To whatever he asks. If you thought you got in for something else and it was like, maybe Lord, that means he ain't Lord. And if it's no Lord, that's a sentence you cannot construct. It is yes, Lord. So I want to challenge you real quickly. Begin, what does this look like for you real practically? How could you start today? First, even if you don't know if you're going to stay around Westgate very long, you can begin to be a part of our loud um, offering. Loud stands for living out unselfish devotion. 100% of that offering goes outside of our walls. Not a penny of it will be spent on anything here that has to do with us. It'll all go outside our walls in terms of our city and our world. Even if you don't like bald people, you can do that. You can do that. You can get engaged in efforts to serve the city that will be coming up soon. You can get engaged in getting one of those calendars and beginning to pray for the different places around the world and the different missionaries that we have. And then some of you are going to get stirred to go on a go trip. And you've been hearing about them for a couple of weeks. Some of you are going to get stirred to do something like that, but you're a little bit afraid of it because you're not sure what it's going to lead to. It will lead to joy. Say yes. Say yes. Somebody had to usher Billy Graham to that little seat in that revival time down in the front row so he could hear the, the gospel. Somebody had to usher him. Why not somebody like you? A shoemaker had to share Christ with Dwight L. Moody, who became like this giant evangelist in our heritage. A shoemaker had to share that with him while he was making Dwight a pair of shoes. Why not somebody like you? A coach had to pay for my lunches so that I could stay in school and my brothers and sisters could stay in school. 65 cents a day. And it, he didn't pay that. He just talked the lunch ladies into giving it to me for free. Because he was good looking like Adoniram, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> what you're doing... Those of you who are faithful, what you're doing may not seem heroic. But to stay at it, you just never know. So I'm going to close with, and I, this is so unlike Steve that y'all are just going to be like, okay, I'm not sure what he's doing here. But I, I was exposed to this poem. I'm not really a poetry guy. But this thing deeply moved me. And so bless you. I want to uh, read you this Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem called A Psalm of Life. Tell me not in mournful numbers life is but an empty dream. 
For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real. Life is earnest, and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act that each tomorrow find us farther than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still like muffled drums are beating funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, bivouac is a French word for like temporary encampment. For those of you who, like me, don't have a clue about what bivouac means. Be not like dumb, driven cattle. Be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury the dead. Act. Act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints in the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn or a shipwrecked brother, seeing and shall take heart again. Let us then be up. Let us then be doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing. Learn to labor and to wait. May it be so of us, God. May you find us faithful. In Jesus' name.